Welcome to Millennial 733. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Today, we are going to discuss the most popular post on Facebook in the first three months of the year and the problems that came along with it. We're also going to discuss the U.S. government's recent water shortage declaration for those of us out west. And then we'll discuss some new bills that permit students to take mental health days. But before we get to those things, a couple quick reminders and updates. First of all, show-related reminders. Make sure you're following Millennial for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. We release new episodes Tuesday afternoons. So those are a couple quick reminders about the show. But also, we have a couple of updates before we get into our main topics today. So first of all, OnlyFans. So we talked about OnlyFans for like 20 minutes last week. And then I think the next day or two days later, they announced that they were canceling their plan to ban adult content on their platform. This is frustrating because it's still very much a mystery as to why they felt the need to instate the ban in the first place and why they've backtracked. This whole thing has really been a mystery. It does still seem to come down to the banks, but I have a hard time believing that banks just suddenly had a change of heart about the situation. They seem like banks generally I see as pretty stubborn, you know, organizations and they have stubborn people at the top. They're not just going to roll over unless this was all a plan by OnlyFans to show the banks just how much backlash there would be around this cuz surely OnlyFans anticipated the backlash. The rollover was so shocking. Like, guess what? We're doing this. Everybody's like, no. And they're like, guess what? We've changed our mind. And we're all like, uh. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. I know some other creators, too, were already. They probably saw the dollar signs leaving because in addition to people just going to different platforms, I, I, I heard that some creators are trying to start their own platform. And create their own set of rules. Yeah, I, I was going to. You were going to start your own platform? I was going to start my own. Yeah, that was going to be my next very big smart. thing. It's a, it's a hole that needs to be filled. That was a really <laughs> bad choice of words. <laughs> you know, no, I was not. thinking of starting my own cryptocurrency that people could use to pay for that platform so that we could avoid payment processors altogether. Andrew, I think this is a winning idea. What would the name of your coin be? Oh, gosh, I didn't think that far ahead of it. I should have. <laughs> that should be the, your first question. <laughs> the T-coin. Call it the T-coin. <laughs> the D-coin. Or the D-coin. Yeah, that's even better. Oh, yeah. vitamin D. That's nice. Uh, Vit D. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what that has to do with <laughs> porn, but sure. <laughs> One thing is for sure, though, they have lost the trust of sex workers. And like Laura meant or like Pam mentions, I think some of these people are going elsewhere because how could you trust OnlyFans now? Apparently they couldn't stand up to the banks to begin with. And something happened behind the scenes that changed things, but I I would not trust them going forward. I would be moving people, my 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 the, fans. The verbiage elsewhere. too was very um it, it was not like a firm guarantee that this was not going to happen again. It just kind of seems like it was settled for now. So it was very vague. They were yeah. like, we secured assurances from our partners. Right. Okay. And how long the, are those assurances good for? Very vague. So, well, that disaster is over. It's funny. We talked about two, I guess you can call them like rollovers in the past week, OnlyFans and Jeopardy. <laughs> hey, here's an announcement. Never mind. <laughs> Both of them <laughs> are messes. Keeps things interesting. <laughs> yeah, it does. It gives us something to talk about. Well, this is a very different kind of story, and I don't know that I can transition into it gracefully from a story about OnlyFans, um, but we wanted to at least mention that Hurricane Ida um, made landfall in Louisiana the day before we recorded this show on Sunday, uh, made landfall as a Cat 4 hurricane on the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And part of the reason we mention this is, I mean, one, it's incredibly important. And at this time, we need to be supporting um, people along the Gulf Coast, the greater Gulf Coast, but then also living in Louisiana. Um, But I, you know, live in the Atlanta area. And it's Monday, our recording day. So like, the day after (laughs) Ida made landfall, which means it's passing over me right now. So if you hear any loud boom booms, or if my internet cuts out, that's why. Okay. (laughs) You know, I heard a pretty terrifying bit of info about 
Ida, it actually strengthened for a little while while it moved over land. And that was because Earth is getting warmer. That's the TLDR there. That's terrifying. I mean, we could be at a place in, admittedly, centuries from now where hurricanes just don't, you know, start to... uh, Yeah, right. Because the land is so hot, it can still thrive over land. Typically, it's just over water. So Yeah. Well, you also have a lot of marshland Mm -hmm. in that part of the country, too. So it's already predisposed to that. It's just getting worse the longer we don't deal with climate change. By the way, Laura, Mariah has an idea for your coin. Tit coin. Tit coin. I love it. It's simple. Simple. It's to the point. Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it really does. I think it's going to have to be tit coin. (laughs) (laughs) Just put my face on the coin. (laughs) Tit coin. Your tits on the coin. Okay, moving on. And something that I I feel like will make the vaccinated among us cheer, um, Delta Airlines has announced that it will increase monthly insurance premiums by $200 for their unvaccinated employees. Mm. I love this. Do you worry, and this is a concern I've heard, that this is a bit of a slippery slope because you can start charging more for health care if, say, they're smokers or they do something else that could potentially put them in a hospital. I think the difference here is that this is a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. Not to say that there aren't other choices that you can make that don't contribute to poor public health, but this isn't just a personal choice as much as people want to make it seem like it is. Your decision to not get vaccinated if you are eligible impacts everyone negatively, and it puts everyone that you come into contact with at risk. That's fair. This is a private company saying, hey, uh, if you want to work here and not be vaccinated, this is the penalty. And if you don't like it, feel free to go work somewhere else. Yeah, I like it. All right. So moving into our three main stories today, we're going to start with one about Facebook. Facebook says the most popular post on its platform from January to March 2021 was an article that brought the safety of COVID vaccines into question. But there was actually some drama leading up to this reveal, this report from Facebook. So Facebook had recently committed to sharing quarterly transparency reports that reveal the most shared articles and posts across the social network. And that's a good thing. This is the first time they've released this data. Previously, you needed to rely on third-party tools, but they weren't, of course, as reliable as getting it from Facebook themselves. Facebook's first transparency report covered April through June 2021, and showed the most popular articles on the site were a Green Bay Packers site, a CBD site, and a viral meme about discovering your poor name, um, amongst other articles. All of them were relatively harmless, nothing too serious, nothing uh, very serious about the vaccine. But a lot of people wondered, well, wait, so this is quarter two. Where's the quarter one report? The same week that Facebook revealed this quarter two report, uh, the New York Times reported that Facebook purposely shelved the quarter one report because the top article, like I said, reports that a healthy doctor died two weeks after getting the COVID vaccine. He had died of internal bleeding. The article received 53 million views from Facebook. So after the New York Times reported that Facebook purposely hid the quarter one report, uh, Facebook was basically forced to release this quarter one report because, you know, it was out there now that they were purposely suppressing it. Here's the tricky thing about this. This article about the doctor wasn't factually incorrect. It couldn't be ruled out that the vaccine that the vaccine was to blame, but it also noted it may not have been the vaccine's fault. Nonetheless, this article being the most shared across their platform of 2 billion people in Q1 is not a good look and of course not a good way to start reporting uh, being more transparent about the articles that are shared. And remember a few weeks ago we mentioned how Joe Biden said on camera Facebook is killing people. Of course Facebook they were hurt by that. They were like, "Oh no, how could you say such a thing?" It's true because the top article in the first 3 months of the year was about a doctor dying 2 weeks after getting the vaccine. And we all know how this goes. Anti-vaxxers, of course, see this headline in their feed and they try to make a point out of it saying, see, see, the vaccine is dangerous. We can't get the vaccine right now. And then, of course, those of us, you know, like us here on the panel, I I doubt any of us saw this, um, but 
we just kind of shrug it off and we try to apply some critical thinking. We say, well, wait a second. Did he actually die because of the vaccine? And if you read the article, like I said, it doesn't say for sure one way or the other what happened. And of course, now a few months have passed. uh, The medical examiner still couldn't rule out that it was the vaccine, but they didn't say it was the vaccine either. So Facebook was in a tricky position here, and I wanted to talk about this and, you know, add on the fact that, Laura, a lot of people get their news from Facebook. Yeah, that's the tricky part. So actually, according to a recent study from Pew Research Center, my favorites, four in 10 Americans say that social media is an important way of following COVID-19 vaccine news. Do we agree with this statement on its face? Yes and no. I think that social media is a great place to start, but I think that uh, America on the whole really needs to be better about uh, using some critical thinking skills and use, utilizing, you know, media literally, literacy skills to really suss out whether or not these headlines are factual. And, um, you know, not to give Twitter too much credit, But uh, I do appreciate that every once in a while, uh, I'll get a banner that pops up when I'm trying to retweet an article. If I haven't clicked on the article yet, that says like, am I sure I don't want to read the article before I share it? Most of the time, if I'm doing that, I've like read it previously. So like, if it's something from the New York Times, I skim that every morning. So I don't need to click on the article to know what's in there because I've already read it. But I'm sure a lot of people see something like this headline that was a huge story on Facebook. And like Andrew said, just use it to fuel their own narrative and push their way of thinking without actually, you know, reading the story and and applying some critical thinking skills to sit, take a step back and just say, you know, like, hey, like, this is a really scary headline. It's kind of scary that it's possible the vaccine could have caused this. But at the same time, it's too early to call. There's not enough information to back up like what the headline implies. I think people also feel a sense of vindication anytime Mm -hmm. they share an article I mean, we've all done it at some point, right? When have we not shared an article because we felt like it reinforced something that we believed? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted us to look at this from our own perspectives. And I think a really good example of that is articles regarding climate change. We see those all the time from major publications. And at least one of us, maybe all of us, have shared one of those articles on Facebook and basically said, see? See, this is an issue. This really is an issue. And of course, it it is an issue. But yeah, all the time, I think society in general uses articles they see in their feed to reinforce what they already believe and then put it in front of their friends and say, see, 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 see. And, you know, Facebook says that the top articles in the U.S. only account for 0.05% of what people see in their news feeds. So in other words, this particular article about the doctor was not seen by everybody on Facebook. Like I said, it was 53 million people, but that's 53 million people who are going to carry that information with them and spread it to their friends in the bar, at the park, on the street, at school. It spreads outside of Facebook. So it's not just 53 million people. It's 53 million people to start. Then it's spread way further through Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, word of mouth. Yeah. Well, yeah. And people are are so much more likely to take... Um, the word of people who are close to them in their communities, people who represent their own values, um, people are more likely to take that seriously, I think, in a lot of cases than they would be to, you know, turn on the news or like pick up a copy of the Times. Facebook. We're really in an age where, you know, to Pam's point, media literacy is very, very lacking. Facebook also backs up what you say, Laura, in their transparency report. They admitted that people are more likely to believe a story if they see it being shared by their friends and family in the newsfeed. On the point of media literacy, I think I mentioned this a few months ago. I took a media literacy class in college. It was one of my favorite classes. And this was before social media blew up, which now dates me and is very sad. Um, But we looked at how to spot real news versus fake news. We learned about, you know, looking at a source and trying to gauge if it's legitimate or not. 
the different types of sources, all kinds of things. It was such a great class. I've always been a media nerd, so that was why I joined it. That would be awesome if media literacy was a required course. It really needs to start earlier, too, because that was a a class that you were elected to take as part of your major or maybe were required to take as part of your major. I know that I definitely was also required to take a bunch of those classes as well because I studied journalism. But all of that really needs to start way earlier on. And admittedly, I don't uh, know anybody that's in, you know, high school or middle school personally right now. So I can't really speak to whether or not it's being taught in those um, like at that young age. But it really does need to start that early. Um, And I think it needs to be reframed as well, because, you know, what I remember from school, for example, is that the rule of thumb was, if a if you're trying to research online or if you're reading something online, anything that ends with a dot com you should be dubious of, and anything that ends with dot org is probably a reliable source. Mm. But that's such like a <laughs> it's such a dangerous way to think about how you're supposed to separate those two things in your head because a, a, a you know a website that's registered as an organization isn't necessarily uh, more or less factual than you know a dot com because anybody can buy a dot org right exactly yes i would say the modern day and also sorry example of this would be a dot gov address that's going to be a reputable source because people nobody we can't go and buy millennialshow.gov right now that's a Mm -hmm. real government source but even then like who's to say that a a dot gov isn't just giving you the basic facts that they want you to digest trump exactly So yeah, I think there there's way more nuance to it. And it's something that I would really love to see um, an emphasis put on for children starting much younger than than college. I don't even know if it's required in college, but it should be. Yeah. I mean, I certainly remember from my days of teaching on more than one occasion when I would be talking to students about what represents a good source. If you're writing a paper, or you're doing a research project. And it became very clear which major news networks people's parents watched because those were the ones they would name. They'd be like, oh, Fox News, right, is good. Or, oh, CNN is good, right? And uh, (laughs) that becomes a really complicated question to answer because you can tell that there is a lot of um, ingrained ideology already going on there. And I remember especially when I was tutoring, being like, do I want to go down this rabbit hole Mm, Yeah, with this person? So I would, instead of saying anything negative about the source they would bring to the table, I would try to nudge them in a different direction um, to look at something more like a government, a .gov, like a resource website like that. We also have to blame the media, too. It's not just Facebook's fault. Looking at this headline... Again, the exact words were, a healthy doctor died two weeks after getting a COVID-19 vaccine. CDC is investigating why. The fact that he got the vaccine two weeks prior really isn't relevant to this because we know people are dying after taking the vaccine and it has nothing to do with the vaccine. So I think this is just very irresponsible on the media's part. Yeah. And then maybe we have to hope that social media networks start teaching media literacy because, of course, it's not going to be we can't go back to college and take these classes. So how are we going to do it? You have to teach people right in the feeds, I think. And I think they do that a little bit. Pam mentioned that feature about reading an article before sharing it. Twitter gives you that little warning. I think that's great. That's a step in the right direction. Facebook should be doing the same thing too. Maybe there needs to be more warnings about sharing or interacting with content that doesn't come from reputable sites. And social media also just has to do a better job of not lifting up the content that is from less reputable sites. I just want to make my recommendation before we move on. Laura's beloved is the the Pew Research Center, uh, who I also love dearly. But my beloved is the Pointer Institute. So pointer.org has some fantastic re- uh, resources if, you know, like you're interested in studying journalism, but also just for like the every person. Um, they also have a bunch of media wise resources. And if you're looking to improve your media literacy skills, that's a great place to start. They also have courses for uh, seniors 
as well. So if you feel like your parents could benefit from some media literacy skills, I would check into this and maybe nudge them in that direction. Um, But yeah, fantastic. And I would highly recommend everybody poke around on there and see if there's anything that could be useful to you. It's always good to like brush up on this stuff as well. Um, Because I think we're all just kind of guilty of, you know, having a knee jerk reaction to these headlines. And it's really easy to forget in the moment, especially if you're already worked up, you know, these headlines are made to entice you to click and they're not always indicative of like the information within the contents of the article. So this topic, this discussion actually relates to our next story. But I'll just say right now, I can't tell you how many times I've read a grim headline. The New York Times does this too. Washington Post, they all do it. And then you click into the article and it's not as bad as they're making it out to be. Yes. Yes, it's still bad. Yes, mm-hmm. what they're reporting is accurate. But they they report some good news in the article, too, if you look at it. Also, just as like a bit of a note, um, I would not if, if you're like frustrated by this, don't blame the reporters because they actually don't make the headlines for these larger news organizations. So you you have to take that up with like the copy editors and like the people that are running things behind the scenes because the people are just like filing the reports and then somebody else is making these headlines and making them sound juicy. Pam sticking up for her people people. to to click on. Well, no, I think it's just really important because, you know, part of like some of these media literacy pointers or how to spot fake news pointers always um, uh, encourage people to look into the person that wrote the article but they're really only responsible for like the body of the reporting and not necessarily the headline. So, right. Now that's a really good point because sometimes when I see articles with these clickbaity and inflammatory titles, people really come after the journalists in the comments on those. Um, and it's not something that I would immediately think to blame on a copy editor, for example. So that's really good perspective. Yeah. I got to give a shout out to our listener, Mariah, again. She suggested making everybody take a media literacy quiz before they can continue using Facebook. And then she said they should have a green check mark next to their name to indicate people who have passed. (laughs) I like that. It'll never happen, but I like it. (laughs) I like that too. So I believe that maybe Jewel might be able to put this on social media for people that are listening later, just want like an easy um, access to these points. So I pulled this from the Cornell University Library. They have a handy dandy little infographic on how to spot fake news. So um, the uh, advice they give is to consider the source, read beyond the headline, check the author, uh, look at the supporting sources. So anything that's linked within the article, you should always be like looking into that as well to get background information. Uh, check the date to make sure that the information is timely. Um, take into consideration whether it's a joke or not. A lot of times like the Onion articles trend as well. And some people might not know that that's satirical. Check your biases, which is something that we've been talking about over the course of this segment. And then ask the experts. So you can consult with a fact checking site or they recommend asking a librarian for some extra reading material. Um, and I guess like if you're in school too, a, a good source for that are like your professors as well. But you should also be conscious of their biases. We actually took uh, a fake news test in After Dark several episodes ago at this point. And I'm going to be honest, we did pretty well on it, but we each got something wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be difficult. So even I would challenge you, even if you feel like you are super media literate, that you're you got the like, uh, you totally got this under control. I would challenge that assumption and really encourage you to go take advantage of some of these resources. Try taking one of these tests and just see how you do and use it as an opportunity to challenge your own assumptions in the future. All right. Our next story. Yeah, here's another really buzzworthy headline that some of you might have seen floating around over the course of the past few weeks. So about a week or two ago now, the government declared a water shortage for the Colorado River. The Colorado River has been experiencing a drought, but this is especially significant because it's the first time that the government has declared the water shortage for the Colorado River 
for the first time in U.S. history. Um, so the reason that this is happening is, of course, due to climate change, but also the ongoing drought as well. Uh, this has been going on for 20 years, so it's just been like progressively getting worse and worse, and and it's pretty bad now. Uh, so some things that are especially affecting the river's ability to replenish are less snow hitting the mountains each year as a result. Um, and that means that the melted runoff can't replenish water levels. And then Andrew also had a note in here that I had missed that you wanted to bring up. So I've been reading a lot of these articles because I live here now. I'm like an hour from Lake Mead. So it's (laughs) of interest to me. I want to make sure I'm going to wake up and have water the next morning. Um, The warmer air actually means the water is evaporating faster, including from Lake Mead. I was reading earlier that about 10% of the water from the lake just evaporates every year. Um, So we lose water that way. And also the grounded plants are so parched that the water gets sucked up before it has a chance to enter the river. So the heat is also contributing in that less water is getting down to Lake Mead. And I'm glad you brought up Lake Mead because uh, that's a huge part of this story as well. Uh, The water levels there have dropped to 40% capacity. It is part of the Colorado River and it's also uh, very close to Las Vegas. So that's why it affects Andrew uh, and Pat in particular because now they're residents of that area. So the Colorado River, for some context, provides water to about 40 million people in seven different states and also some people in Mexico as well. So it's a huge chunk of the population that's being affected not just in our country, but also um, in the country just to the south of us. Uh, The low water levels are leading to mandatory cuts in water supply in the southwest. Uh, Arizona is set to see an 18% reduction to the state's total Colorado River supply. And that's primarily going to affect agriculture, which I think that on the surface, some people might think, well, at least it's not affecting the people. But at the end of the day, like agriculture is really important and we need you know, to make sure the crops are are thriving, as the kids would say. So this is a pretty big deal. And then out in Nevada, um, they are going to have to be adhering to a 7% reduction in 2022. Yeah. And uh, wow. one little fun story I saw. I- I'm surprised they released this. The Las Vegas Water District released a list of the top water users in the city, like the actual the people's actual names. Top users included homes owned by Boxer Mike. Mike Tyson, casino mogul Steve Wynn, and magician David Copperfield. So I wonder if the water company here is now just like putting public pressure on these people to stop using so much water. You know what? I kind of love that. Yeah. I'm down for it because I will tell you right now that California is always in a drought. Like, I don't don't think people realize that it's just it's an ongoing drought. And every year it kind of changes in terms of like whether or not the state is trying to push for water reduction, but you should always be trying to conserve water if you're from out here. But I swear to God, like when I'm up north in and around my hometown, most people's lawns are dying, which is great. Like that's what I want to see if we're conserving water. And then I go out to LA and everybody's got green grass. And (laughs) I know that not all of them are using recycled water to make sure that their grass is green. And it's so frustrating. Yeah. It is. We can talk about the changes I think we should make in a moment. But bottom line is, if you live in a desert, you should come with the expectation that nothing's going to be like it is on the East Coast. It's just time to accept that we need to live differently out here. No green lawns. We'll, we'll get into that in a moment. I have I have thoughts. Yeah. So so this is just kind of like the first step. Um, some of these uh, water sh- cuts that we have mentioned before. But if things don't improve, which is it's looking kind of like they won't, uh, then additional cuts could follow as soon as 2023 if Lake Mead continues to fall. Yeah. So does this stress you out, Pam, as a California resident? Yeah, it. Do- I mean, like it doesn't, it doesn't because I, I just feel like this has been our rea- my reality my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was telling me, I did not know this, but I guess because we were born into a drought as well. My brother and I were both born into a drought. And she was saying that after it got better, she I don't I don't have, have no recollection of this. But after it got better, she had to remind us when we were quite young that we could flush the toilet again because they had ingrained into our heads at school that if, you know, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it. down. <laughs> Which I've never so heard anyone funny. say that out loud. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, but, Mom. but it's like it's just like it's really funny that 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 was you know it was so bad that the grade schools were teaching us that we needed to conserve water. 
Well, now they have these toilets. I'm sure everybody's seen them now where there's like two flush handles on it. And one uses a lot of water. One uses a little bit of water. The, the latter is for when it's yellow in there. It stresses me out somewhat because the future does feel very uncertain. But there is good news here. And this gets back to this story we were just talking about concerning Facebook and reading headlines and how headlines are always doom and gloom. So like Pam mentioned, 70% of the water in the Colorado River goes to crops. My opinion, we should stop farming in the desert. Anything that requires a lot of water, move it east or start pumping in water from the east specifically for the crops. But here's some good news. Okay, I'm sorry to give everybody some good news because I know the newspapers aren't, at least in the headlines. 99% of indoor water used in Vegas is recycled. That is amazing. Everything going down the drain is recycled. Here's another amazing stat. Between 2002 and 2020, the Vegas Valley has reduced its per capita water usage by 47%, even as the area's population has doubled. The population has doubled, and we've reduced water usage by half. That's amazing. You don't see headlines about that. How did they do that? There's watering schedules. The water's being reclaimed, like I said. I think those are two of the biggest things. And, you know, this is just a reminder that you read the headlines, it, it really stresses you out, but then you look at the articles and you do get little tidbits like this. So, you know, a common refrain you hear out here is that uh, Vegas needs to stop growing. I agree with that. I am a freaking hypocrite because I just moved into a brand new house. (laughs) I am part of the problem. (laughs) But now that I'm here, it's time for it to stop growing. (laughs) No more. My point just is that the growth actually, it's not increasing the amount of water that we are using out here. In terms of like what changes we would like to see, I really think no real grass should be used at residential properties. I have fake grass in my backyard. It's green year round. I don't need to cut it. It doesn't give me any problems. Maybe people's pools, should. You know, maybe there should be limits around the size of the pool that you're allowed to build because obviously you're taking a lot of water and just letting it sit in your backyard. Maybe instituting some limits could, could make an impact there. Again, getting back to what I was saying earlier, when you move out here, you just have to accept things are going to be different. It's not going to be like it is in the Pacific Northwest, even though they've had droughts now. It's not going to be like it is in the East. How about a nice yard with some nice river rock? Desert landscapes can actually look very, very nice. If you go around here or, you know, New Mexico, California, some people do it and it looks great. Yeah, there's some really I'm just nice... imagining you oh. with uh, cacti in your yard, Andrew. I got some cacti. And they're great. Well, cactus is very trendy right now. So, you know, maybe that should be a good incentive for any prospective millennial homeowners. But I've also seen a lot of really drought-friendly landscaping happening out here. And it always looks really nice. It's really impressive to see what people can do because it's not like they all look the same. And so it's really kind of cool to see how different people, you know, tailor their landscaping designs to their own specific tastes and and create something that that is going to be drought-friendly. Yeah. By the way, Laura, you asked how Vegas reduced its water usage. Um, I don't have additional answers for the past, but we've heard that they are considering passing a new law that prevents you from planting grass that basically has no use. If its only use is to be mowed, it's going to be banned. So, you know, like grass along like entryways in front of businesses, stuff like that. The only place I feel like real grass should be allowed to grow is real parks. You know, parks are good for for society, for the community. Let that happen. You know, other than that, we don't need real grass. And like grass is really hard to maintain. You don't want to be mowing your lawn out there like every week or two weeks. Yeah, it sucks. Any other changes you would want to see, Pam? It's a big undertaking and and it costs money, but any kind of way that you can fix up your, your lawn or your backyard so that, you know, you don't need to worry about grass or anything that's going to take a lot of water is uh, is going to help in the long run. And it's going to save you some money. So I just looked it up. This non-functional turf, meaning grass that serves no purpose other than to be mowed. Um, if we removed all of that in the Vegas area, it would reduce annual water consumption by roughly 15%. That's pretty amazing. Holy shit. Well, I know Andrew just gave you some good news, but I thought that I would temper it with some 
not so good news. Uh-huh. Um, because if we look at this issue from a larger viewpoint, like if we zoom out a little bit and talk about water insecurity um, as a larger subject, it's one of the many consequences of climate change um, that as this crisis gets worse and worse, access to clean water for drinking, cooking, etc. is going to be far more limited for a lot of communities. UNICEF has recently come out and said that the lack of clean water is a far deadlier consequence than the violence they see in the war-torn countries that they work in. Wow. They named Syria specifically as an example. Um, And there is a lot of really horrible violence going on there. So for UNICEF to come out and say this, for the UN to back up this statement to say lack of access to water is going to be a far... Um, greater, um, more debilitating issue than I think a lot of people are anticipating it being. Um, And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because access to water doesn't just evaporate, uh, no pun intended. Um, It's going to happen slowly over time. So Maybe, for example, you know, the United States is not a war-torn country. Um, The Colorado River is not dry at this point. But because this is a problem that progressively worsens, this could be a symptom of a trend that we will see continuing in this and other parts of the U.S. that makes it a lot harder to access the amount of water we're used to consuming. Interesting. So, boo. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I have a recommendation this week. This article was actually just released in the New York Times about the situation with the Colorado River. So if you want further reading on this, please do read it. The link will be in the show notes. Well, speaking of saving things, I want to talk about saving money with Honey, this week's sponsor. Honey is the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart, meaning manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey could not be easier to use. Just install it, then forget it. Then when you're on the checkout page of over 30,000 stores online, Honey will spring to life and say, hey, give me a second. Let me look for some coupon codes for you. Then it tries them out with your cart to find which one is going to get you the best deal. It is a dream come true. Recently, I was shopping for a new webcam, and on the checkout page, Honey appeared and said, Hey, I got a code for you, and they saved me 10 bucks. It was wonderful. The other nice thing about Honey is that they'll monitor prices over time, so you can see if the price has recently risen or fallen, so you can make sure you're buying at the right time. Honey has found its over 17 million members over $2 billion in savings. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in just a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash M-I-L-L. That's joinhoney.com slash M-I-L-L. I wanted to talk about this story um, that I saw in a couple of places in the Times, uh, in the Washington Post, and I also saw some local reporting about it. In the last couple of years, several states have passed bills permitting students to be absent from school for mental health reasons and for a mental health day to be a valid excuse to miss school. I thought this was so interesting because I remember... Um, during, you know, my schooling years, which weren't so terribly long ago, I could have never seen that flying as a legitimate excuse to be out of school. And I think it speaks to how far discussions about mental health have come in our culture. Um, Many of these efforts were spearheaded by students. We actually have a link to a really good TED Talk by one of the students um, who pushed for these bills uh, that we'll link in the show notes. And most recently, in March, Utah Republican State Representative Mike Winder sponsored a bill that broadened the definition of a valid excuse for absence to include mental or behavioral health. He was inspired to do this by a suggestion from his daughter, who was a college student. 
And I thought this was really interesting to highlight because I think sometimes when we think about challenging assumptions, for example, it can be really easy to view issues like mental health as being partisan. And I think in a lot of ways, it can be depending on the people in the conversation and the specific topic at hand. But I wanted to say that it it made me feel really good to see that there was somebody ideologically opposite of me that was able to see the importance of this, Um, that he was able to take his daughter seriously when she suggested this to him. Unfortunately, it was because of his daughter. A lot of people never take things very seriously until it happens to them or somebody they know. But yeah, it's progress. um, And it's actually in line with... um, what the advocacy group Mental Health America says in 2020, they surveyed teenagers to learn what would be the most helpful to their mental health. And in the results, they found that access to mental health professionals and mental health breaks as part of work or school were the top resources young people requested to support their mental health. Um, So in addition to Utah, uh, currently Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Maine, Nevada, Oregon, and Virginia have passed similar bills permitting mental health days as valid excuses. So with all of that said, I would like us to reflect on our childhood and our years in high school. And I'm wondering, did any of us ever take mental health days from school? Were we allowed to do that? My mom would not have allowed this, so it wouldn't have even had to really? go to the school. Yeah. Yeah. No, she. Well, here's the thing. I think that unless, like a lot of times, I don't know if it was the same for you guys, but I didn't know that my issue was anxiety. I just thought I had a really bad stomach ache. Right. And so like if you don't have the proper words to explain to your parent what you're going through. And sometimes even when you do, they're just going to think, oh, like you're just nervous for a test or like you're just Mm -hmm. you have a stomach ache. My mom was like that parent that just said, oh, if you're sick here, here's the Pepto-Bismol. Here's the DayQuil. Here's some cough drops. Go to school. So, yeah, yeah, this would have just I I just would have never thought to. But I think it's really great that that it's uh, a possibility now for kids in these states. It's interesting because this question made me think about my mental health as a middle schooler, high schooler, and I was bullied particularly in middle school, but high school and college, I think mentally I was pretty good. Yes, I had things stressing me out, but I didn't have things stressing me out to the point where I was experiencing anxiety that was crippling. I wasn't having panic attacks. I was pretty good. And maybe some of that comes from the fact that I've been pretty lucky in terms of life, just career wise and family wise, like things have generally been pretty good. Now there's definitely more stressing me out that does lead to panic attacks and a lot of anxiety. I mean, just everyday things now or like, you know, suddenly a little switch will trip in my head and I'm I'm off balance. But I never had that happening to me back then. If I was having bad mental health days back then, honestly, like Pam, my parents would probably roll their eyes and tell me to suck it up, especially my dad, which is interesting because he's one of the most mentally unwell people I know. My parents actually promoted this when I was a kid, and I didn't, obviously, I was really young. I didn't understand exactly what it was that we were doing, but I have distinctive memories of not all the time, but, you know, every once in a while um, being told, hey, like, you're not going to school today. We're going to go do this fun thing. Or if um, my parents could tell that I wasn't feeling well, but I wasn't sick, sick, not physically sick, um, it would not be uncommon for my mom to say, oh, maybe you need a mental health day. And I had no idea what a mental health day was when I was a kid. But I went with it because it meant I got to stay home sometimes. And looking back on it, I think I've really benefited from that. I'm wondering now, do we take mental health days from work as adults? Working for myself, it feels it feels like I should be able to, but I don't. I really don't. If I take a mental health day, what am I going to do? If I'm here 
I'm still going to see emails and stuff. Like, sure, I could maybe really put the phone away and break free, but then I'm also going to fall behind. I'm going to fall behind with my workload. For the time being, no, I don't. I don't really take time off much in general. You know, we take like some holidays off for the podcast and stuff. That's something I'm really bad at and I need to get better at doing. (laughs) You know, we all deserve it. I really need to. I I um I am of the same thought that of Andrew, which is that it's really not anything that I'm thinking about. But I I have noticed it because you know like in this last year, nobody was really going anywhere, and I don't think I realized that I, I just like had not asked for any time off just to do nothing or go do something fun because you know there was really no need to travel, and like, where are you going to go? You know, so in my head, I it just like really made me realize that I constitute asking for time off or I compute asking for time off as like going on vacation and not just like taking a day to just do whatever I want at home, um, mm-hmm. which is probably not good. I, I have there was one time that I that I did have to take a, um, a mental an extended mental health break from a job that I was working, but just going through the paperwork to do that was bananas, honestly. And I I just remember thinking like, this is probably why people don't do this, you know, because I, I was taking like the maximum amount and I had to write up a statement about like why I was asking for the time off. It wasn't just oh. I, I really need to take some some extended an extended leave because I'm I'm having a tough time. You know, it was just like, we saw that you had a panic attack on the floor. Go talk to HR and ask them for the mental health time off. And then I had to talk with them about like why I needed it. And then I had to write a statement that they could like officially file. And then I had to like sign a bunch of paperwork to do it. And it just like, it seems like a huge hassle. I'm glad I did it. But wow, I get why, you know, people might not want to because you have to jump through a lot of hoops to to get that approved and stuff like that. Yeah, I've been in that scenario before too, Pam. And it's so funny because until you said, until you talked about having to fill out the paperwork, I totally didn't remember this, but I've been in a couple of jobs, primarily service industry, where in order to request time off, I had to submit a written form And you had to include the information about the time off you wanted. But there was also a box you had to fill in for the reason you were asking for the time off. And I was much young. So like I was, you know, in high school and we're doing all the Harry Potter conferences and like traveling and stuff. So it was all cool stuff to talk about. So I didn't think anything of it at the time. But thinking about it now, I'm like, man, what if I'd been going through something that I didn't feel comfortable disclosing because it was personal? And I think about all of my coworkers who probably did get put in that situation especially because of the stigma around mental health particularly yeah. older generations they don't believe that it's a real issue some i definitely take mental health days from work and it's really hard to get over feeling guilty about doing it even though i've always had good experiences with taking these days um I've never had anybody react negatively to me taking those days. And I also feel like by me doing that and being really open about it, it gives other people permission to start feeling comfortable taking those as well when they need them. So I try to be really open about it. I actually planned ahead for a mental health day. I told you guys about this in After Dark last week. But I literally scheduled it like a couple weeks out. And I was like, this is going to be the day. I'm going to do all these things. Um, And I'm super excited, super looking forward to it. And I think it's I have more fun approaching the mental health day that way, planning for it, as opposed to waking up one morning and being like, oh, God, I don't have it today. (laughs) Like, I just don't have the capacity to deal today. Yeah. Well, good so on you. You were really that- smart, though, that you like because you were telling us about your plan for the day, and you literally picked activities that were all nice and relaxing for you. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people probably just, if they choose to take mental health days, 
will use that to catch up on stuff they don't have time to do because work takes up so much of their life. So I, you know, I know I have quite a few friends that say, I'll just take like a vacation day so I can like run errands, go to groceries or like pick up this thing. And it's just like, that's not like a vacation, but I get it because I'm the same way. But like, we both need to be better about doing this, you know, properly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've definitely been there, too. I've uh, I've, I've been guilty of scheduling myself a random day off here and there and then being like, oh, I'll just do doctor's appointments and errands that day. I'm not going to be doing anything else when it's like, well, actually doing nothing was the point. Right. <laughs> now you're doing everything. I think one of my issues is that, like I said, I feel like I'm going to fall behind, but I'm happy to say that I have been getting more help doing podcasting work. Shout out to one of our listeners, Andre, who uh, came forward when I made my plea on the show. Does anybody want to help me with editing? Andre and a couple other people came forward, too. And I really appreciate that people, you know, I'm like, oh, wait, people actually listen to the show and are hearing what I'm saying. Sometimes I forget that when I'm just sitting here talking. I think that's going to be helpful for me long term because I can say, you know what, I'm going to take a mental health day Wednesday and I'm going to ask Andre to cover for me that day, you know, you know, take care of things that I would have done that day. So that's been probably my biggest issue and something that maybe I'm fixing now. Well, time for recommendations. Pam and I already gave ours. Laura, what's yours? So this could actually be helpful for your mental health or just for your sleep. I highly recommend blackout curtains. Mm-hmm. Um, so they actually sell these as shades as well or um, as like the Italian style, like cloth blinds. Um, so we ended up getting some for our place and they legitimately work. They prevent any sunlight from getting in the room. Mark and I, I think, are vampires because we prefer not to be hit with light, with sunlight in the morning. We want to sleep in darkness as late as possible. So I can't recommend these enough. They're great. I got them at Lowe's. They can be dangerous, though, because if you don't get any sun in your room at all, you sleep longer. And I know you sleep late into the day. So this, you know, you want this. But I've been in hotel rooms before where, like, it's really, really blackout. And I mean, if I got to keep the shade open a little bit because otherwise I'm going to sleep late into the morning. The the last time I was in Vegas, they had blackout curtains at this place. And we (laughs) done. I thought it was way earlier than it was. And I looked at the clock when I rolled over and woke up and it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. But it's Vegas. So nothing is really happening. In Vegas, it must be by design to have really good blackout Mm -hmm. curtains at the casinos so you can sleep as late as you want and then spend the next night gambling. (laughs) If you have any feedback about today's episode, you can write directly to millennialshow at gmail.com or by using the contact form or anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. Don't forget, too, we would greatly appreciate your support at patreon.com slash millennial. Our Patreon is the reason why we are able to run this podcast. Laura, we've got another great After Dark teed up for today, right? We've got a couple more story time things. It sounds like last week's episode, we shared a little bit of uh, personal drama. We spilled some tea in After Dark, and it sounds like we've got a little bit more of that coming this week. Sounds good. It's just been the gossip show recently. We're just going to call it Gossip Dark. (laughs) Okay, no. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Bye, Bye, everyone.